This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's make sure that we're in fellowship. We do that through the private use of 1 John 1, 9, if necessary. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we take a few moments so that if necessary you can uh, deal with any unconfessed sin in the life and then we will uh, pray and move forward. So let's bow our heads together. Father, we do thank you so much for the privilege and opportunity we have to gather together as a body of believers to fellowship around your word. We thank you for the illumination that it provides to our life, that it gives us truth that we can base everything on. It is the light that provides the basis for all other study, all other thinking in life. It gives us certainty and surety in everything that we uh, think and everything we do. Now, Father, as we continue this study of your word, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things, see how they relate to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Now, we are continuing a study in James chapter 3, and the framework of this particular paragraph is a contrast between human viewpoint thinking and divine viewpoint thinking. Now, what I mean by divine viewpoint is simply this, and that is that the Bible in its entirety from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books of the Bible written over a period of 2,000 years by at least 40 different authors who came from a wide variety of backgrounds, a wide variety of educations, uh, vast difference in their uh, expertise. Some were shepherds, some were kings, some were prime ministers, others were fishermen. You have this vast number of people over a period of 2,000 years who write the Scriptures, yet every book of the Bible expresses one viewpoint of reality, and that is God's viewpoint of reality. So we talk about divine viewpoint, that the Scriptures present a viewpoint of every issue of life. Now, they may not deal with every issue of life in detail, but it provides the believer a framework for thinking about life, so that whatever arena of life you go into, whatever your profession might be, whatever your avocation might be, whatever your hobbies might be, the Word of God has something to say to provide a foundation for your endeavor. Whether it's science, whether it's something in the arts, whether it is something in politics, law, education, whatever it is, the Bible provides a framework for thinking within that particular discipline. In contrast to that, Satan has his own system. We call it cosmic thinking. The Bible calls it the thinking of the world. We also call it human viewpoint. So we set up our contrast between human viewpoint thinking, the thinking of man, versus divine viewpoint thinking. Human viewpoint thinking is also called cosmic thinking from the Greek word cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S, which has to do with an orderly arrangement of information, an orderly arrangement, a system. And Satan has numerous systems, all of which are designed to promote his agenda for the human race. And his agenda for the human race is that man will, will be able to find meaning, purpose, and value apart from God. His agenda is antagonistic to God and in opposition to God. And so he is continually promoting different viewpoints, different ways of thinking about reality. Now, every single culture that is produced in human history, whether you're talking about a primitive culture such as some tribe in Irian Jaya, whether you're talking about a more advanced culture like the Chinese of the uh, 
11th or 12th century, whether you're talking about a Greek culture in 5th century B.C., an Egyptian culture of the 2nd millennium B.C., whether you're talking about a modern culture, every culture has its own viewpoint. And this viewpoint, these viewpoints are all subcategories of human viewpoint. They have their concepts of whatever is ultimate in the universe, whether it is no God, many gods, polytheism, what kind of polytheism it is. They all have their views on what is ultimate. They all have their value systems. In fact, there's one tribal group in Irian Jaya where the greatest ideal in relationships is to be able to deceive somebody to the point where it costs them their life. Therefore, lying in that particular Stone Age culture was taken to its fullest extent. Don Richardson wrote a book about his experiences as a missionary to that culture. He was the first white man they ever saw. And it's called Peace Child. Fascinating story. Got to hear him speak a couple of times when I was a student at Dallas Seminary. And he talked about the surprise that came to him and his wife, to he and his wife, when they had finally learned enough of the particular dialect to be able to communicate something about the story of Jesus. And as they communicated the story and they got to Judas betraying Christ, turned out Judas was the hero. And it took them quite a while to study that culture, to learn their value systems, to learn how those people thought, what they considered good, what they considered bad, before they were able to communicate the gospel clearly to those people. And what they discovered in this culture that had taken deception to uh, almost an art form, they asked the question, what do you do in order to get somebody to trust you? I mean, at some point you have to have trust. At some point, with this breakdown of various tribal groups, you have to have trust between people. What do you do to ensure that? And the answer was that the chief of one tribe, these were all Stone Age groups, maybe five or six families in each subgroup spread out through the, through the wilderness area there here in Jaya, that when they had to make peace between two groups, the chief of one group would take his infant baby and would meet with the chief of the other group and he would give his child as a peace guarantee to the chief of the other group. Which then became the analogy that the Richardsons used to communicate the gospel that Christ had indeed get what well, Jesus Christ was God's peace child to man. Now the reason I go into that is to illustrate the fact that we are all missionaries in a culture that doesn't think biblically. Just as you any missionary goes to goes to Africa goes to India, goes to uh, the former Soviet Union, goes to China, goes to any cultural group, before they go there, they have to learn how the people think, what their value systems are, what their culture is like, so that when they get there, they can communicate clearly the gospel to those people. That's why it's important for us to understand such esoteric-sounding things and confusing sounding things is postmodernism because postmodernism is the term that is used to describe the thinking of our culture of an American culture at the end of the 20th century modernism has reigned for the last century and a half two centuries and now that has been dethroned by a new way of thinking a new approach to reality which is called postmodernism and it has a lot of aspects to it that, that I don't have time to go into. But if you are a parent and have children coming up in the education system, you need to know this information in a lot more detail. And there's a book I recommend called The Death of Truth, which has chapters in it on law, chapters on art, chapters on uh, literature, chapters on education, chapters on medicine, uh, each one written by a specialist in that particular field. And by reading something like this, you can come to understand how these ideas are infiltrating your particular area of interest. 
if you have kids that are in college, if you're coming out of college, any of these areas, you need to get a hold of this book and read it to help you understand these various influences. Now, we all have this culture. This is a human viewpoint culture. We'll describe it by this circle. Now, the interesting thing is that here you are at point X. You're born into that culture. And you grow up in that education system where you pick up the values of that culture. You watch TV, movies that express in their stories and in their values and everything the the values of that culture and that way of thinking. You read the... um, the magazines, everything from fashion magazines to people magazine, talk magazine, cigar aficionado, whatever it might be, these all communicate, all these pop, popular items all communicate the value system, the viewpoints of, of our culture. Now, obviously, we don't live in it. It's not a monolithic culture. In other words, there's not just one rigid viewpoint. There's a lot of different things going on in our culture. But this is human viewpoint. The Bible calls it worldliness and says that we are not to be conformed to the world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, the renovation of our thinking. That means that we have to learn to identify these human viewpoint ideas that we have absorbed, that have been taught to us, and that we have picked up from living in our culture. And we have to be able to identify them in our own thinking so that we can expunge them from our soul and replace them with principles of doctrine. That's what this is all about. That's the whole process of the spiritual life in a nutshell. It's renovating the thinking, which means it doesn't happen haphazardly. It doesn't happen just because you show up at church once a week. It happens because you make it a priority in your life to learn how to think as God wants you to think and not to think the way your culture has inculcated you to think. And that means that you're not going to show up at church experience, you know, waiting for some kind of rosy glow experience so that you're just going to go away talking about how wonderful it was to have been at church this morning so that I feel good and I feel closer to God. Because the issue is never how we feel. In fact, the emphasis on emotion is a typical characteristic of modern and postmodern thought. And it's a result of psychoanalysis. If you go back and you look at the influence of Freud on our whole culture and the influence of uh, psychological thinking, you see that, that from Freud you saw a return to the fact that people need to think about their emotions. How do you feel about things? You go through some kind of event, well, how did that make you feel? Typical in a counselor's office, well, what were your feelings at that time? And the issue is not, and the response to someone like me is always, well, you just want to deny feelings. No, I don't. Emotion is something that's very important, something very vital that's part of the soul that God has given us. Our soul is made up of our self-consciousness, our mentality, our emotion, our volition, and a conscience where we store the norms and standards, our value system. Now, when we have emotions, we need to be aware of what they are. We go through different events in life. Some things exhilarate us, give us a lot of enthusiasm and excitement, and we revel in certain situations in life. There are other events that are emotionally uh, difficult. We lose friends. We go through marital breakup and relationship breakups. We lose uh, parents, we lose loved ones, we lose spouses in death. We go through all kinds of things, and these are very difficult. Sometimes we grow up in abusive situations where where we are mistreated, and you have children growing up in all sorts of horrible, horrendous circumstances. But the issue to resolve those problems is not to become self-absorbed and revel in what emotions those are that were generated. I know that in my life I've gone through a number of difficult circumstances and it's very easy at that time to stop and just revel in self-pity 
and how hard this is and how difficult it is and why me and you throw a pity party and everything else. And the issue is not identifying those emotions. The issue is what has God done, what has God provided for you so that you can handle any and every situation in life. Remember, God is omniscient. That means that God knows all the knowable and that God has always known all the knowable because He is eternal. God devised a plan for human history, and that plan was big enough, broad enough, and expansive enough to include a provision for any and every situation you will ever face. There's no heartache. There's no difficulty. There is no trial. There's no trauma. There's no adversity that you're going to face that God did not know about billions and billions of eons ago. In eternity past, God knew every single detail of your life, and He made provision for that. And he told us how to think about these things and how to respond to them in his word. And the, and the issue is going to be, when you face a test, are the resources that you use to face that test, that adversity, that difficulty, are those, is that going to come from human viewpoint thinking, or is that going to come from divine viewpoint thinking, which is encapsulated in the doctrinal principles revealed in the Word of God. When we utilize divine viewpoint on those tests, we do not convert the outside pressure of adversity to the inside pressure of stress in the soul. Remember, adversity is inevitable. Stress is optional. Adversity is the outside pressure of what circumstances do to you. Stress is the inside pressure of the soul, what you do to yourself. Adversity is inevitable, but stress is up to you. The issue is volition. And stress can be completely blocked in life through the use of the stress busters. Now, that's the framework for what James is saying in this entire epistle, how to have tests and trials and handle them with a maximum amount of joy. Now, we come down to the end of chapter 3. And from verses 14 through 16, we have the characteristics of human viewpoint thinking, which is ultimately arrogance, self-absorption, self-centeredness. Verses 17 and 18 contrast the wisdom from above, which is divine viewpoint. Now, we have been looking the last two weeks, and we're going to wrap it up tonight, we've been looking at the basic issue of postmodernism. And I said that in postmodernism, there's no such thing as absolutes. It's different from just relativism in the sense that, that in the past, the relativism that we've had has been primarily individual. Now it's shaped a little differently into a social construct. In postmodernism, there is the rejection of truth. According to postmodernists, truth is created, not discovered, and postmodernists think that things like reason, rationality, and confidence in science are merely cultural biases. So there is a rejection of reason from the outset. Now, in order to get into a little review, what we have done in the past couple of weeks is we have seen that in, in analyzing history, we can break history down into three broad stages. We'll call the first stage pre-modernism, second stage modernism, and the third stage post-modernism. We saw that pre-modernism would cover that period up to about 1600, and then with the development of the Enlightenment with thinkers like Descartes, Leibniz, Spinoza, Locke, Barclay, Hume, you see the, the growth of an emphasis on human ability to answer all of life's problems apart from God. That man, either on the basis of his own innate reasoning powers or on the basis of experience, empiricism, would be able to construct a truthful, accurate view of reality and thus solve all of man's problems. The pre-modern view was based fundamentally on theism. 
Not necessarily that everybody was a believer, everybody was a Christian, but everybody believed that there was a God, that truth was objective and knowable, and man could learn. They might disagree as to what it was, but they believed there was an external, objective, verifiable truth that man could come to learn and that man could know. And that God was, however He was defined, He was, he was transcendent and He was eminent, which means He was greater than the creation, but He was also involved with His creation and that He had communicated to His creation. With the development of the Enlightenment, and the key word here is right, is right here, enlightenment. The light of human ability in contrast to the darkness. When you talk about the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages, you're buying into an anti-Christian concept of history at that point. It was dark because it was under the auspices of the church. Now, that doesn't mean we agree with everything that was going on during that period, but it was a theistic concept and in the words of Augustine, man looked at knowledge that I believe so I can understand. The presupposition to all knowledge was God. Now, they made a lot of mistakes during that period. They tried to, um, they tried to merge science with, uh, as understood with Aristotelian science and Platonism with, with the Bible, and they came up with a lot of strange ideas. But fundamentally, they were theistic. So you have the rejection of God here, and man becomes enthroned. Man's reason becomes enthroned in the place of God. And you see that culminate in the French Revolution, uh, roughly 1790s. That's when the Enlightenment really reaches its, its full power and theism is dethroned. But in, in the Enlightenment, what we see is that reason and experience or empiricism become the means of being able to arrive at truth. And it is all done through the rigorous use of logic. The starting point is always man. Man is the measure of everything. But over the course of time, there were reactions to modernism. In this period up to, we'll just say post-modernism, well, started to really be recognized by the 1960s. In modernism, over the course of, of time, there were various reactions to modernism because it was viewed as being somewhat cold. It didn't give real meaning and value to life. This hard, rigorous logic seemed to end up without being able to arrive at a knowledge of God. So there were various reactions, but still within the general modernistic view. There was the first reaction was romanticism. This came about in the early 19th century, an emphasis on nature, emphasis on the individual, emphasis on emotions. You see this exemplified in theology. This was about the time that you have a man by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher is the father of modern religious liberalism. And he said the way you know that there is a God is because of your feelings towards God. So it's an emphasis on feeling, not the objective, revealed Word of God, but how it impacts you emotionally. It doesn't matter what it says objectively. It's only what happens inside of you emotionally. You have the rise of Darwinism and modern science. And along with that, modern technology. And modern science is going to solve man's problems all of this, of course, is built on the foundation of autonomous human reason and experience. It's independent of God's revelation. Then there's another reaction, which is called idealism. This is exemplified in the thinking of Georg Friedrich Hegel and various others at that time, mid-early 19th century, 1840s, 1850s. Then you have the, you further have more uh, this kind of ping pong effect back and forth between strict science, 
strict use of reason and empiricism, and on the other side, this reaction which always ends up emphasizing emotion, subjectivism, and mysticism to some degree. Now, when you come towards the end of the 19th century, you have the rise of a philosophical system called existentialism. And existentialism emphasizes the fact, the reason it's existence, the only way to authenticate and give meaning and value to your existence is by doing something, anything. Remember, there's no value system. Just by doing something. It doesn't matter what you do because there's no value system to determine good or bad. You just do something. Now, the reason this came about was because by the end of the 1700s, you had a man by the name of Immanuel Kant. I know I keep, I'm reviewing this again and again so that we get the, the picture. Immanuel Kant divided reality into two areas. One area he called the noumenal. This is the area of universals, where we would put absolutes. This is where you would put knowledge about God, knowledge about absolute morality. And then downstairs you have all the details of life. But Kant came along and said you can't know things in themselves. Up to this point, everybody's believed there's real objective knowledge available to man. They didn't know what it was, they couldn't agree with it, but they believed it was possible. With Kant, after Kant, nobody believed it was possible anymore. Kant said you don't know things in themselves, you only know how you perceive them. So the only thing you can ever know is your own perceptions. So now there is this brick wall erected between the top floor and the bottom floor. And if God is up here and this is a brick wall you can't get through because nobody can know what's in the upper story there, the only way you can get there is to have some sort of subjective leap of faith. It's not based on objective data anymore. It's based on the fact that you can't live you can't really live your life unless this is there. So I'm just going to assume it's there so I can have meaning, whatever it might be. You can decide one thing over here, and you people over on this side of the auditorium can decide something else. But as long as we construct something to explain life, uh, we have to. And it's all subjective because there's no objective truth. So all we have down here is subjectivity. And now all truth is subjective, and objective reality is being destroyed. Now, this is what's happening at the university level at the end of the 1700s. It filters down in society, and people who never heard of Kant, Kierkegaard, Hegel, whatever, are thinking this way now. It's infiltrated so that the way the average street person thinks has been impacted by the shift of ideas that took place 150, 200 years ago. Now, existentialism says, basically, I have to live as if there's no meaning. If, if logic comes around and can't produce a, a, a knowledge of meaning and value in my life, then, then I have to have it some way, somehow. So I have to somehow uh, confirm my existence. So let's summarize existentialism. This is a tough concept for many people to understand. We're going to summarize existentialism in five points. You know, my wife looks at me. If I can summarize 2,000 years of church history in five hours, I can summarize existentialism in five points. So we'll give it a whirl. In existentialism, there is no inherent meaning or purpose in life. No objective meaning or purpose in life. Rationalism and empiricism might provide a logical order of life, but it dehumanizes life. It reduces everything to just raw mechanics, DNA and cell structure. Everything is a machine. Man is reduced to the level of a machine. Therefore, in existentialism, there must be a meaning in life, even if it cannot be arrived at logically. So you see, that's the point. You can't, logic can't get past that wall between the lower story of details and existence and the upper story where meaning and value and significance is. And where God is. So you, you just have to, you can't get there logically. And on the basis of raw empiricism and, and rationalism, life ultimately ends up being absurd because there's no meaning there. 
So you maximize absurdity. You want to know where a lot of, of um, modern art came from. It's an expression of this type of worldview, that there are no absolutes, so if things don't exist as they do, then you create an abstraction. You get the development of Dadaism and Cubism and all of these other other things, and people look at them and go, how is that art, and what is he, what does he see? You know, what was he smoking when he painted that? That sort of response. There's no inherent meaning in life, so since it can't be arrived at logically, you have to just assume it's there and create your own concept of meaning. Objectivity is, or the objective realm, is absurd based on pure rationalism and empiricism. You can't validate on the basis of pure reason and experience, that life has meaning. So people end up, life is absurd. This was what was going on in the 60s, why people were, were turning on and tuning out and dropping out all over the time, whatever the saying was. You know, they always say if you, don't remember the, if you can remember the 60s, you weren't there. <laughs> But they're trying to, they're, they're overwhelmed by the fact that on a pure mechanistic, scientific view of reality, there, you can't get to meaning. So if you can't get to meaning, let's just go do drugs and listen to rock music and just wallow in our own experience. Without an, the ability to get to objectivity, life becomes rather dark and pessimistic. And absurd, and ultimately led to a worldview called nihilism, and that was um, uh, Nietzsche, who said, "God is dead." I always like the T-shirt. Have you ever seen it? it? Says, "God is dead." Nietzsche. And underneath it says, "Nietzsche is dead." God. <laughs> Second point of existentialism: since meaning can't be discovered objectively. It can only be determined subjectively. I mean, if there is no objective meaning or value that is true for everybody in every place at every time, then the only way to get to meaning is for you to make up your own meaning. So you can make up one meaning, and you can make up another meaning, and you can make up another meaning. But as long as you can give a sign meaning that makes life significant for you, that's all that matters. So under existentialism, each person creates his own meaning. So by their own choices and actions, each person then determines his own system of values, his own explanation of life. So you have everybody comes up with a different set of values. Third point under existentialism, no one can determine that meaning and value for someone else. So, person A can't determine that for B, and B can't determine that for C. Each person has to, within their own self, and their own experience, come up with their own explanation of meaning and value in life. Point number four. This then provides the rationale for... Contemporary relativism. Since everyone creates his or her own meaning in life, their own value and purpose, then every meaning is equally valid. If A creates their own meaning, and B creates their own meaning, and C creates their own meaning, and D and E create their own meaning, who then has the right to say that the other person's meaning and value is wrong? That their value system is not right? So, if each person determines their own ultimates, in other words, each person now is going to make their own decision as to what is up here to give meaning and value to what's down here, then every person can be right and no one is wrong. This makes, renders religion now a purely private, subjective matter which can't be imposed on someone else. Now, where that's going to go is that if you're a Christian and you say you have absolutes, that is going to run headfirst into this whole way of thinking. So now we have tribal America who's thinking 
this way. And we are missionaries to this culture. And they, as soon as we start talking as if there are absolutes, they look at us like we just spouted horns and our skin turned green. And we look like we came from another planet. Because they no longer believe that there is meaning and value and absolute. The content of someone's meaning makes no difference. What matters is that you make a commitment to that meaning yourself. So, Jean-Paul Sartre chose communism. Heidegger chose Nazism. Rudolf Bultmann, who's a very liberal, I'll use the term loosely, theologian, chose Christianity. But it doesn't matter what you choose as long as you choose something to validate your existence. Francis Schaeffer used the illustration that it doesn't matter whether you walk the old lady across the street or push her in front of the car. Because there's no value system to determine that one's right or one's wrong. Either one is a choice, a commitment on the individual's part, and they make a decision so they validate their existence. And what this does, it begins to break down society and fragment society. And so point number five, existentialism then becomes the philosophical basis for postmodernism. We go back to this zigzag drawing I have here where you see that within modernism you see these basic reactions of romanticism, idealism, and existentialism, each one carrying subjectivism a little further down the line until existentialism itself becomes the seed and the foundation for the next major shift in human thinking. And see, whether most of you think about, have realized it or not, to one degree or another, we all are infected by postmodern concepts. We're products of our culture. We can't avoid that. Just as you have some people who are, people who are in their, uh, let's say, 70s and 80s who are in the World War II generation are very much a product of what they went through in the Depression and World War II. They can't escape that. That's part of their makeup. That's the culture they came out of. They're going to think a certain way. That's why you had this major generational gap that came out in the 60s. is because, as, as um, Sidney Alstrom, who's the head of the uh, church history department at Yale, wrote a book on Christianity and the American people, very well-known, well-respected view. And when he breaks down the various periods in, human, I mean, in American history... He says it's 1963 that is the end of the post-Puritan era. And what he means by that is that the dribbling out effect, the blessing by association from the old Puritanism, Christianity, the Great Awakening that gave birth to this country, that it's got a residual effect that finally plays itself out and it's all gone by 1963. And there's many other people who, who create a line there. It was about, I think it was in 1964, either late 63 or early 64, that you had the development of flower children and hippies in Haight-Asbury out in California. So there's an ide- a major ideological shift that begins to occur there so that baby boomers who are coming of age in the early 60s are thinking differently than their parents did. And we're seeing a lot of the results of that in the way our politicians handle it. Now, if you don't think this is important, let me tell you. Let me give you a little example that I just learned recently. When I was at, at, a, at this Conservative Theological Association meeting in Fort Worth two or three weeks ago, the young man, I was so pleased to hear a young man give such an excellent report, a young man by the name of Paul Shockley gave an gave a excellent uh, lecture on postmodernism and hermeneutics. And I got to visit with Paul. We had some mutual friends out of uh, Houston that had gone to seminary. And Paul and I were talking. And Paul went to that great state university of Stephen F. Austin in East Texas that where I attended as well, if you don't know. And uh, he was a history major as I was. Now, he was 20-something years behind me. And we got to talking about, well, who did you have for this? And who did you have for that? And we had the same professors. 
Now, when I had these professors, they were just fresh out of their Ph.D. programs. He's got them 20 years later, and one, we each, I mean, we both had the same favorite professor. We took as many courses as we could under this one man. I took courses under him because he challenged my thinking. I walked into Western Civ, you know, History 101, and he started talking about the fact that Moses couldn't have written the Pentateuch because, uh, really, there were all these redactors, who came, editors, who came along and uh, put together the Bible. And one guy emphasized the name of God is Yahweh J. Another guy emphasized the name of God is Elohim, that's E. Another guy was a priest. He wrote Deuteronomy. Or, or another guy was the Deuteronomic redactor. He's the legalist. And then the fourth guy is P. It's called the JEDP theory. It was originally developed in the 1830s or 1840s. And it's, in a scholarly way, it's been debunked for a hundred years, but it still hangs on, and it was taught to me as fact in my Western Civ class. I went back and talked to the guy about ten years ago, armed with all my knowledge, and he wouldn't listen. Anyway, Paul and I were talking about it, talking to him, talking about him, and Paul said, well, I really got into trouble because when I, when I, I had to give a particular report, and I talked about the fact that it was Western civilization in conjunction with Christianity that laid the foundation for all of the freedoms and values and absolutes that we have today. And he said, Jackson just went nuts. He went ballistic and he apologized to him later. But what, I've, what according to this young man, this professor I had has migrated from a modernist view, which he held when I had him, to a postmodernist multicultural view now. And this is what's being taught in the classroom. That means that, that the present generation really for the past 10 years or so, the present generation of college students who are going through and they're taking courses on everything from journalism to literature to media, whether it's television or movies or whatever, uh, history. History is no longer the study of absolute facts because there's no absolutes anymore. History is what the postmodern jargon calls it meta-narrative. That meta meaning big. It's meta-narrative. And every culture has their own stories. That's basically what meta-narrative does. Is that the postmodern literature is shot through with all this fancy jargon that you have to interpret for yourself. How postmodern. You see? You can't understand it because it's all this jargon. You have to assign your own meaning to it. So you get this... this uh, Postmodernism comes along, and all these students, in history, there's no absolutes. Where was I? History, there's no absolutes. So each cultural group can go back and make history mean whatever they want it to mean to support their own agenda. So there's no longer anything as truth. It's all power. And you twist things. So when you interpret the Declaration of Independence that um, uh, we believe these truths are self-evident that all men are created equal, that... Men, well, that excludes women, so obviously it's a male uh, sexist statement here, and they're really affirming men only, and they're anti, anti-women. And that we affirm that all men are created equal, well, they, some of them were slave owners, so they don't, didn't really believe in freedom, they believed in a qualified freedom that was for white males only. And so you end up reinterpreting, you deconstruct the, do, the historical document, it no longer has an ob- historical objective meaning, it now has a meaning that you have assigned to it through deconstructionism, and it means just the opposite of what it was intended to mean. So you see how this is going to break down society. Now you have lawyers, and you have this in political science majors, you have lawyers, you have politicians, historians, uh, journalists, all of these kinds of people are going to be coming out of universities where they are educated to think this way. So that when, because they lack any absolutes from any kind of a Christian framework, because we're living in a post-Christian society, they don't believe in absolutes. So if you're a journalist, there's no such thing as absolutes. There's no such thing historically as facts. Facts are something there to to massage, to fit my agenda, because it's all about power. So when I make a report on something that happens in Washington, I can make it whatever I want it to be. 
And nobody can judge it because there's no absolutes. This is leading to the, going to lead to the complete breakdown of our culture. So I've got some points here as to what the consequences are from all of this. Consequence number one is antinomianism. It's going to lead to a cultural antinomianism. Now, anti means against, and nomian is from the Greek word namos, meaning law. It's the complete rejection of any kind of absolute, so whatever I want to do is okay. I can give free reign to my sin nature because there's no such thing as sin. There's no such thing as right or wrong. So we see a collapse of values and absolutes and the development of an antinomian culture. Secondly, it leads to, be, to a society that is divorced from reality. Because each... own reality. So you have one reality and I have one great. So everybody's pursuing a different reality. Well, when you're divorced from reality, you're living in the realm of fantasy. Is it any surprise that one of the greatest genres of literature and movies and entertainment that has taken off in the last 20 years has been the realm of fantasy? Because if you're divorced from reality, you're living in the realm of fantasy. Fantasy is built on an escapism, avoiding the problems of life through pleasure, entertainment, drugs, any form of distraction. It can even be work. It can be investment in the stock market. It can be getting online on the Internet and spending hours doing day trading. Any of these things are diversions from interacting with life where you have to think about ultimate meaning and value. This leads to a cultural drift. You're no longer advancing as a culture. You're now in cultural decline. You're just drifting. And that drift will lead to cultural fragmentation. Fragmentation, you take a fragmentation grenade and it explodes and it goes in every conceivable direction. And that's what's happening in society. And there's a technical term for this. It's called multiculturalism. Because everybody emphasizes their own culture, their own values, their background as being valuable and just as good as anybody else's. So it, except unless you're a white European male. That's the worst. So... It's Eurocentrism is wrong. Now, how they can say anything is wrong is beyond me, but it's inherently illogical. So you shift to Afrocentrism. That real, and of course, that flies in the evidence of all history. Asia centrism and all kinds of different things. You have the emphasis on Native Americans. And all of their values and a return to spiritism and all of these sorts of things. So you see that society and culture will just, our whole culture will fragment as a result of this. Now, the interesting thing about all of this, I think, is that there are a lot of problems as a Christian with modernism. Modernism said there was no God. Modernism said that that man can find his own truth. So, as Christians, we've had a lot of problems with modernism. Now we're living in a a society where I think that that people will be more, in in some senses, possibly more open to the gospel. Because there is a sense, it's a greater sense of a loss of meaning and value. that, That there is a drift and people want something to hold on to. Something to anchor their thinking to. So as believers, we have an answer. We can give absolutes and we can give certainty and we can give truth. So I think that in this vacuum, there is perhaps some opportunities for Christianity. And that's just why we have to understand some of these basic distinctions. A little chart here I just want to summarize with. Write it up here. You've got 
through the three basic periods we're talking about. You've got pre-modernism, modernism, and post-modernism. And we're going to set up some categories. God, man, will, authority, sin, and progress. In pre-modern thinking, in terms of God, man was basically theistic. God existed. He was knowable. He was objective. He was imminent and transcendent. That means transcendent means he is above the creation. Eminence means that he is involved in the creation. In modernism, there is no God. It is atheistic. You can't know God. He might be there, but we can't know it. In postmodernism, it's really whatever you think is okay, but there is this tendency towards spiritism. All of the New Age religions, mysticism, because mysticism is inherently subjective. So that tends to be where postmoderns go. But they don't all have to go in that direction. Many might be just agnostic or atheistic. In terms of man, as a Christian... In pre-modern thought, man is created in the image and likeness of God. He is made up of a material body plus an immaterial soul. And it is that immaterial soul that is in the image and likeness of God. In modernism, man is purely material. He is just biology. He's just a collection of cells and DNA. He is a material machine. All that exists is the physical universe, and the only reality is determined by sense, sense perception, and reason. In postmodernism, man is purely social. He is a social being, and he is a social cog in the machine. So, your values are the product of your social group. They're not absolutes, they're just a product of your social group. And we have to figure out what that is so we can deconstruct you. In terms of will or volition. In Christianity, man has free will, but that volition has been diminished by the fall but man is still fully responsible for every decision he makes, including decisions for salvation. Christianity, man must be saved. Sin is a violation of the character of God. Because God is righteous, He can have fellowship only with righteousness. And what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God provides. So, when the righteousness of God rejects the unrighteousness of man, God had to provide a solution. And He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for man's sin. And man is responsible for whether or not he accepts or rejects Christ as his personal Savior. In modernism, man is completely autonomous. He is completely independent. He is the master of his destiny, the captain of his soul. In postmodernism, he is determined by his culture. So he's not free, he's just a cultural construct. Free will is only a product of your imagination. You only think you're free. In terms of authority, under pre-modernism, the ultimate authority was God and His revelation. God was objective and He had revealed Himself to man propositionally in the Scriptures. In modernism, man is the ultimate authority man's reason and his interpretation of his experience is the ultimate authority. In postmodernism, the ultimate authority is is purely subjective and it is based on inner impressions, emotions. In pre-modern thought, there was such a thing as sin because there were absolutes. So there was sin which was a violation of the perfect righteousness of God. 
But in modernism, there is no sin. So modernism ends up with Joseph Fletcher's situational situational ethics. And this is, in turn, under postmodernism, sin. There is no such thing as sin. Anything goes. There's absolutely no values. There's no truth. At least under modernism, there still was some sense that there was some level of truth, but in postmodernism, there is absolutely no truth. In terms of progress, Christianity, pre-modern thought, said that there was ups and downs through cycles in human history. There's declines. There's advances. The only hope is going to be the second coming of Christ. Man eventually would be on the verge of self-destruction. In modernism, man is all, it's very, very uh, optimistic. Man is going to always advance on the basis of science and reason. In postmodernism, the very concept of progress is a code word for European white male domination. This is where we're living today. Now when you read the newspaper and you hear various stories on the news and various editorials and interpretations of events, and when you see how you can have uh, a criminal, a person on trial, where there is scientific DNA evidence presented, which means that it makes it one chance out of tens of millions, hundreds of millions, even billions, to be that person, that you can reject that logically and say the whole thing is a racial construct and make the man not guilty. Because you no longer think in even modern terms of absolutes. Everything is a social construct. And you don't even know you think that way. But that's why these things are happening in our culture. So we see that what James is saying in this whole section is when you start off when arrogance, and all of this is arrogance, modernism and postmodernism are both arrogance because ultimate truth lies with the self. And when man emphasizes self, whether it's in knowledge or any other area of life, it is nothing more than arrogance, and arrogance is always destructive. And we promote and institutionalize arrogance as we have done. The result is going to be the fragmentation of our society and the fragmentation of our culture. But there is always hope, and there is always a solution, and that is the spiritual solution. That is a solution that's outlined in God's Word. It begins with Jesus Christ. Because the greatest problem that man will ever face is the problem of sin. And Jesus Christ solved that problem on the cross. And so if Jesus Christ could solve the greatest problem we can ever face, He can solve every other problem. He is the source of meaning. He's the source of value. He's the source of happiness for every human being on the planet. And the promise of God is, is that if you trust Christ as your Savior, you will have eternal life. And if you learn the concepts of God's Word, what we call Bible doctrine, you learn the principles of God's Word, and you let doctrine dominate your thinking so that you interpret life and you react and respond to the adversities of life through the application of doctrine, then you can have an incredible joy, peace, and tranquility, and you can rise above and live above your circumstances, no matter how great they are or how poor they are, your circumstances are no longer the issue. That's why the Apostle Paul could say that whether I have an abundance or whether I suffer want, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's the issue, is how we problem solve. And modern man wants to problem solve on the basis of his own arrogance. And as Christians, we have absolutes that will fit every situation 
in life. That's called divine viewpoint wisdom, and its characteristics are described in verses 17 and 18, which we'll cover next Wednesday night. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank You for the privilege we have to look at Your Word for the illumination, to understand, be able to, on the basis of these absolutes, critically evaluate the cultural trends that are going on around us. We see how these attitudes, these influences do affect our own thinking and so that we can root out these human viewpoint concepts in our own mind and replace them with the absolutes of Your Word. Father, we pray You'd help us to understand the things that we've studied tonight, to see their relevance for our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.